So um, we're going to do the reading a little bit differently this morning, and it does require your active participation and enthusiasm. Uh, so apologies that so early on a Sunday morning. Um, if you, the reading is from Matthew 1, 1 to 17, and it's Jesus' family tree. And it's a quite unusual reading. In fact, lots of times it's not read in churches at all, because on the surface, or at first glance, it can appear a little bit boring and irrelevant. And so just to bring it to life a little bit, we're going to do it in a slightly different way. And you've got two visual clues, and they're provided by this. Uh, so if you see a smiley face, uh, you need to do a big hooray. So can we, so just try that? Hooray! And when I said bigger, you know, sort of, just not, not half hearted it's really good. So just try again. Too enthusiastic. There we go. I'll just, this could be interesting, couldn't it? Right, let's see what happens. Uh, good. If you see the sad face, uh, I want you to imagine that something has gone wrong on your iPad. And so, and you just go, uh-oh. Okay, so we'll just try, I'm going to do it quite gently. This one. And this one. Marvelous. I'm going to do it really gently because I don't want them falling off. Um, good. So this is, this, this is Jesus' uh, family tree, and it tells, it says it compresses the Old Testament into these 17 verses, starting from Abraham and coming right through uh, to Jesus. Here we go. Here is the family tree of Jesus Christ. Hooray! The son of David. Hooray! The son of Abraham. Abraham the coward who pretended his wife Sarah was actually his sister. Abraham was the father of Isaac whose name means laughter. And Isaac the father of Jacob who swindled his brother out of his birthright. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his 11 brothers who sold Joseph into slavery and told their dad he was dead. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother Tamar, for the sake of justice, was forced to play the prostitute by weak and evil men. Perez was the father of Hezron, the father of Ram, the father of Aminadab, the father of Nashon, the father of Salmon, the father of Boaz, who was a kind and decent man. Boaz's mother was Rahab, the prostitute who welcomed Joshua's spies and protected them. And Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother Ruth stuck with her mother-in-law when the going got tough. And Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David, the great king of Israel. And David was the father of Solomon, who sensibly asked for God's wisdom before all things but blew it by being weak and easily distracted. Solomon's father was ba- mother was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, whom David had killed. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, who was faithful to God for much of his reign, but abandoned God for five years. And Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, a godless king, And Abijah was the father of Asa, a good king for much of his life. 
who turned his back on God at the end of his life and died of gangrene. And Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, the father of Uzziah, whose pride led to a nasty fall. And Uzziah was the father of Jothan, a very good king in every way. And Jothan was the father of Ahaz, a very bad king in every way. And Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah, who restored the kingdom to holiness and justice. And Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, who ruled as king for an amazing 55 years, but was a very wicked king for all 55 years. And Manasseh was the father of Amon, the father of Josiah, who led the nation back to God when he was 18. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, who were all faithful to God throughout their lives. In Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, who was father of Zerubbabel, a wise governor of his people. And Zerubbabel was father of Abiud, the father of Eliakim, who was the father of Azor, father of Zadok, father of Achim, who was the father of Eliud, who was the father of Eliezer, the father of Mathan, who was the father of Jacob, the father of Joseph, whose fiancée, got pregnant in highly unusual circumstances, but who learned to trust God. And he was the husband of Mary who said yes to God. And she was the mother of Jesus, the Messiah. (laughs) Well done, well done, well done. So there we go. If you want to, can I have a Bible? Sorry, is there a Bible? That's it, marvellous. Um, If you want to keep your Bibles open, we are looking at Matthew 1, uh, verses 1 uh, to 17. And you've probably looked at it before, and you've you've sort of just gone, well, that's not very interesting, I'll I'll move on. But actually, we're just going to spend a little bit of time uh, looking at some of those names and looking at why Matthew starts his gospel in this way. It is a strange way for 21st Western ears uh, to hear the beginning of a story. Uh, in Mark's gospel, Mark just is great. Mark's like a, 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 a he's, he's writing a film, really. And so he just throws us into the middle of the action with just like a one-verse introduction, then bang, we're straight into the action. Luke, on the other hand, is really careful. He starts by introducing himself. He talks about his sources. He tells us what he's trying to do in creating this thing called a gospel. And then in John's gospel, John just begins... Uh, by blowing our minds, those first 18 verses of John, where he goes back uh, rather ambitiously to the dawn of time and starts his story there and then builds and builds and builds until he talks about uh, Jesus, uh, the word, uh, becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us. You just feel each of those are amazing and brilliant ways to start a gospel. And then Matthew slightly lets the side down uh, by this, you know, just rather tedious uh, list of names. And we think, well, what really is the point? Matthew, could you have done better? And if you are a fan of the BBC show, Who Do You Think You Are? You will know, in part, the answer to why Matthew begins his gospel with Jesus' family tree. And that is because we learn things about people from their family tree. It helps to fill in their background. And to Matthew's Jewish audience in particular, this was supremely important. 
uh, for them uh, to be able to see, to tie the arrival and the birth of Jesus, to tie that right back uh, to the beginning of the Old Testament and to underline to his Jewish readers uh, just how the story of uh, Jesus actually begins at thousands and thousands of years before, as we will see when we light our Advent candle uh, later on in the service. But I want to concentrate on a couple of things that stand out in that list of names. And the first is that apart from the name of Jesus, there are two names that stand out in that family tree. And Matthew repeats them several times and underlines them just so we can be sure and notice. And those two are Abraham and David. If you picture what Matthew's done, he begins uh, with Abraham, and then he gives us 14 names from Abraham through to David. And that, in a sense, is the first part of Old Testament history, from the calling of God's people uh, with Abraham uh, through to the arrival on the throne of David, arguably the greatest king of all. And that's 14 spans, says Matthew. And then he goes again, and he goes from David to the exile of the people into Babylon, which was a point of crisis and seeming catastrophe for the people of Israel as they get hauled away from their land. And then last of all, he gives us from Babylon through to Jesus himself. And in highlighting Abraham, what Matthew is doing is reminding us about the promises that were made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, uh, Abraham is promised that through him a great nation uh, will be born. If you remember his circumstances, he was childless. He and Sarah, his wife, they were both old. Not, none of them had any idea that it was possible that they would have a child. And yet God comes to him and says, uh, you will be the father of a great nation. He promises them that they will have a land which they will occupy, that will become theirs. And he also promises that through Abraham, the whole of the world will be blessed. All nations will be blessed. And so that's why Matthew starts at this family tree with Abraham, because of all of those promises that God made to Abraham. But then he also highlights David, David the great king, of course, was a deeply flawed man, but still was a man after God's heart, a man who's left us all those wonderful psalms, but also in his own life, a testament to the courage and the faithfulness and the tenderness that God granted to him. But David was promised in 2 Samuel 7, not only that his son Solomon would go on and build the temple, which David had wanted to do himself, but also that your house, David was promised, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. And it was out of that verse in particular that the Jewish hope of a Messiah, the anointed one, grew that God had promised that a son of David uh, would come and would be a king in the way that the old kings, David and Solomon and all those others, uh, could never really be. But at the time of Jesus, how must those promises have seemed? The promises to Abraham and the promises to David. They must have seemed a joke. How, in any sense, could it be said that the people of Israel were a blessing to the world? 
or that Abraham's descendants had a country of their own, or that a king, a son of David, uh, would rule. All of those things must have seemed uh, ridiculous. But in highlighting that those promises were made to Abraham and then to David, Matthew is preparing us uh, for the way in which Jesus is going to fulfill so many of the promises of the Old Testament. And even just in those first couple of chapters of Matthew and Jesus' birth, time and time again, Matthew stops. He says, this happened, but this was foreseen all those years ago. And we'll hear some of those great readings in our carol services in a few weeks' time. So Matthew's preparing us for all those ways in which Jesus will fulfill the promises of old and emphasizes that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that was promised, the one for whom we've all been waiting. The second thing that Matthew in particular does is he highlights that, I don't know what your family tree is like and how far back it goes, but this is a very mixed bunch of people. There are some saints, uh, but there are plenty of lowlifes, and there are plenty of wicked kings, and there are some nobodies, and there are plenty of people who were defiant of God, either for the whole of their lives or certainly for part of their lives. And he really wants to highlight uh, that uh, to us. And for Jewish people at the time of Jesus, purity of lineage in terms of your biology and your DNA was really, really important. So if you wanted to be a priest, then you had to prove uh, that your line went all the way back hundreds of years uh, through to Aaron. Uh, that was how important it was uh, to come from the right family. And so in that context, uh, Matthew introduces into the story all these outsiders and all these failures and all these nut jobs and all these people who had no place really in being part of Jesus' family tree. And in particular, Matthew is at pains to highlight four rebel women who come into the action at crucial points. And Matthew's point that he wants to make is that that's how it's always been with God's kingdom. Every big turn in the life of the kingdom, says Matthew, there have been these rebel women who have, through their courage and through their sacrifice and through some of the humiliation that they've had to suffer, have brought God's kingdom back onto track. And he highlights four of them in particular. All of them were foreign, so they weren't 100% Jewish blood. Two of them were humiliated by powerful men. All four of them showed faith and courage and staying power, and thus they were able to keep God's promises on track. And yet, all of them had moments in their lives uh, that would keep them off your family tree and off my family tree. Uh, the first was Tamar, who was married to Ur. Ur was the firstborn son of Judah, uh, and Judah, if you remember, was the son of Technicolor dream, dream boy Joseph. And when Ur died, uh, then Tamar was uh, given in marriage to his brother, who was called Onan. And it was Onan who invented uh, the withdrawal method of contraception uh, to stop her getting pregnant. Uh, Jude, uh, when Onan then died, Judah told Tamar to wait 
for years and years until his youngest son, Shelah, was old enough to marry her, uh, and then Judah promptly forgot all about her. A lot of love in that family. And uh, so, in desperation, Tamar uh, pretended that she was a shrine prostitute, and she allowed uh, Judah, her father-in-law, to proposition her and to pay her to have sex. He didn't know it was her. Uh, and he eventually conceded at the rightness of her cause. Now, that is not someone that you would put front and center in your uh, family tree. Uh, Rahab comes next. Uh, she was a Canaanite prostitute who lived in Jericho. And she sheltered two Israelite spies. And so she made the conquests of Jericho possible at great potential costs to herself and her family and turning traitor on her own people. But she said to the spies, I know uh, that your God is God and that he is doing this. Then we have Ruth, who was a Moabite widow, uh, who through courage and through compassion uh, secured not only her future, uh, but that of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And through her reciprocal love with Boaz, she became the great-grandmother of great King David. Again, she was uh, from Moab. She wasn't part of the people. And yet God used her in that special way. And then we have Bathsheba, uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uh, King David, if you remember, spotted her bathing one evening. He had her brought, I'm sure against her will, uh, to the palace. He slept with her. He then arranged for her husband to be killed. It was one of the lowest points in the life of the Israelite monarchy, although it did provide, provoke David uh, to write Psalm 51, surely one of the most searing uh, but beautiful psalms of confession. So Matthew goes out of his way to remind us about these four women. And then we come to Joseph and to Mary. Uh, Matthew has been meticulous all the way through. He has used the formula, Jacob, the father of Joseph, Joseph, the father of so-and-so. But instead of saying Joseph, the father of Jesus, he describes Joseph as the husband of Mary. Now, legally, Joseph was Jesus' father, and emotionally and practically too. We've known many people who have adopted children, and we know that fierce love that the parents of an adopted child has and that clear sense that they are my child, and nothing, nothing, nothing can persuade me otherwise. But Matthew is laying the ground here by changing that formula for the story of Jesus' miraculous birth that he's about to tell uh, that we'll look at next week. And of course, he's already prepared us for Mary. We know, listening to the family tree, that at least four times previously, God's purposes have been fulfilled in the life and the service of a young woman who's had to face humiliation and misunderstanding and to go it alone. Mary, Matthew is reminding us, will be no different. But that is how God has done things in the past. And that is how God is going to do things now. So to, Jesus, to Matthew's Jewish listeners... It's a gentle prod of a reminder that it's never been about purity of blood. It's never been about coming from the right family. God has always 
taken in, outsiders, nobodies, people from the fringes, people who are thought of as nothing and has given them a central role to play in his purposes. So as Matthew sets the scene at the start of his gospel, maybe this seemingly boring family tree has actually been brilliant. It's a reminder that God has always been bringing in outsiders. You don't have to have come from the right family to be part of what he is doing. He's also reminding us that there have always been plenty of insiders who don't or won't get it. So that family tree has in it people who were by blood and by lineage absolutely spot on. But in terms of their life and their service and their love for God and their love for others, they stank. So he's reminding us that there's always been people on the inside who don't or won't get it. He's reminding us in a very economical way that all, this, all these years of waiting for those promises to be fulfilled, the promises to Abraham hundreds of years before, the promises to King David hundreds of years before, those promises, people have been straining towards them, waiting for them, longing for them uh, to come into being. And now, says Matthew, that time is here. And we will watch as we read the gospel uh, Jesus fulfill uh, God's promises to Abraham and David. And we will see Jesus reaching out to the lost and the different and the beggar and the rich man. We will see Jesus uh, collapsing in his kingdom the barriers of race and gender and sanctity. And we will hear Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel tell, uh, quite frankly, a ragtag bunch of failures and dropouts, dropouts and scaredy cats. Jesus will tell them, go, go and make disciples of all nations. And Matthew is saying, who cares about your dodgy family tree? Who cares what Aunt Jemima did in the war? Who cares what you've done in the past? Who cares, uh, in a sense, whatever you are and whatever you have been? We, at this church and at any church, are a ragtag bunch of failures and dropouts and scaredy cats. That is who we are. But we are here today to cheer that we have been made part of this ever-growing, wonderful family tree of saints and sinners. It started with Abraham, and now it's got to me. And now it's got to you. And our names, through the grace and through the love of Jesus, have been added to this family tree. And so we stand as this ragbag bunch of saints and sinners to celebrate that fact and that the promises of God to Abraham and then to David have been fulfilled. And we are also here uh, to be reminded that we, this ragtag bunch of saints and sinners, our mission is to go into all the world and to say to everybody, saint and sinner alike, there is room in the family of Jesus for more. We never claim big things about ourselves, but we always say with love and with tenderness that all are welcome into this mixed up family of which we are a part. That nobody has a past or an ethnicity 
or an identity that puts them outside of the kingdom of God. But actually, almost always, the great purposes of God have been in his compassion, have been given to the outsider and to the lost and to the broken and to the unlikely. And so if that is the case, we rejoice. It's not about what family we were born into. It's not about what money we bring. It's not about what job we do. It's not about the greatness of our identity. We simply are called by God and loved by Jesus. And we celebrate with this family that we are part of. We don't get on with everybody all the time. But still, we celebrate this family and we remember that we are a family that is ever-growing and has to have ever-open doors and has to always be on the lookout lest we give any impression that to belong here or to be part of here, you have to have achieved, you have to look in a certain way, you have to come from a certain place. All of that is nonsense. Let us, let us learn from what Matthew tells us in this very economical, very characteristic, very Jewish way of saying that Jesus' family tree, a right mixed bunch, are in God's economy the way that he works in our world. Amen.